Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. (laughs) The second annual NDC Minnesota is coming up May 6th through 9th. Go to ndcminnesota.com today to register. And tell them Carl and Richard sent you. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're still in London at the NDC conference. Because we like it here. We do. It's kind of miserable outside, actually. Yeah, it, it's miserable outside. It's kind of cold in here in yeah. this little box that they've got us in. But um, great conference, great people. It's fun seeing our old uh, UK friends. and uh, Some of shows more off the rails than others. Admittedly, we're recording also on a Friday at the end of the conference. So at some point, a bottle of whiskey will appear, I'm I presume. I'm thinking it might. It yeah. just might. And then that's a whole lot of poor adult decision making after that. Yeah, I'm thinking Rob Connery might have something uh, to do Yeah. That. So when you hear that show, think about where we were and what was going on. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, Simona Coton is here. We're going to be talking to her about Azure Functions on Node and all sorts of other good stuff, I'm sure. But first, we have this little matter of Better Know a Framework. Roll that crazy music. All right, dude, what do you got? Um, this is an article that goes way back to January. For us, that's seven days. But uh, for you, that's probably a couple of months. Amazon, as you know, has dabbled with uh, the idea of using drones to deliver packages. Right. right? And where did that go exactly? Well, you know, it's a... They're still tinkering away. I'm sure the FAA will have words with them. Like, there's some issues. There's some issues. That's right. (laughs) Um, But you're right. They do have... uh, They do have some in test areas and whatever so but meanwhile before that can really gel and solidify they've announced this new land-based delivery vehicle called guess what it's called scout ah that's sweet yeah it's a little six-wheeled box basically and uh if you go to 1628 dot pop dot me you will see this article about how they've got this uh, scout uh, delivering in snohomish county that's so cute so i worry about violence committed to this device like i i feel like there's all as we start putting more automation and things around like the the they've got these security drones too right apparently they get vandalized a lot right yeah. The fact that this thing's driving a package down a sidewalk. Right. I just wonder what people's reaction to it is really going to be. Somebody with a mask in a baseball bat can really I just think harm or, or just it. a random kid too. Like yeah. I, I, it's it's interesting when there's a perception of a lack of consequence with what the actions that might take place. That seems to be very common in tech is that yeah. there's this sort of rosy idea that Hey, because it's cool, people are going to not abuse it right. and, and leave it alone. Tech people tend to think that way. And the rest of the world is more, you know, oh, I think I'm anonymous here. I can get away with this. Right. Let me in, indulge this base impulse to smack the snot out of a three-wheeled buggy that's, you know. Uh, six-wheeled. Yeah. It's, okay. <laughs> it's this, you know, this R2-D2 great, 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 great grandfather. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's the idea. And so, uh, well, we shouldn't really contemplate that are people inherently good versus evil but um i tend to think that people given a choice will tend to do the right thing and certainly given consequences will tend to do the right thing but i think if given a choice will well apparently they're testing it in snohomish in snohomish it's a very nice part i've been there yeah it's very nice not far from microsoft not far from amazon it's kind of a nice area yeah we knew somebody who used to live there yeah we do yeah and uh but i think I don't know. Uh, we'll see. Uh, you're right. This has a whole bunch of built-in problems. I'm curious to see what happens. Right. Right. I've, I've, I don't mind a world where you order something and within a few hours, a drone drops it off at your door. Like, right. That's compelling. I think, you know, just like we have ruggedized devices for handheld computers, I think we might want to ruggedize this thing, like maybe with some tasers. Right. Or, uh, but I also think as it gets more common, spray. It, it, will, it will disappear. You'll stop noticing it. Yeah, probably. So I think that's part of it. All right, cool. So yeah, we're starting with six Amazon Scout devices delivering packages Monday through Friday during daylight hours. 
Um, the devices will autonomously follow their delivery route, will, but will be initially accompanied by an Amazon employee. There you go. Okay. So. Go to Snohomish, watch little boxes drive themselves around. <laughs> there you go. I thought that was cute and cute. interesting. All right. Who's talking to us today? I grabbed a comment off the show 1594, which we did with Maxime Rurier about Azure Durable Functions. Mm. And that was from November of 2018. Not that all that long ago. Okay. And this is a, a long comment, but uh, well, you'll love it. This is from Matt Thornton, who says, Hi, Richard Carl. I've been working in .NET for over 10 years, but never much been into podcasts until recently. Hmm. I found your show a couple of months back, and it's, to quote Richard, Awesome. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> you said that? I, apparently, I say that. Okay. Oh. I've been binge listening as much of the back catalog as I can. Dude, 1,600 shows. Like, wow. Take it easy. They fit so neatly into my morning dog walks. And oh. I, may, I have anxiety now. Because well, yeah. someday he's going to get to the bottom of the stack, and then what's going to happen to his dog walking? Mm. All right, it's good. It's going to last for a while, but mm-hmm. you know, uh, you've already made my life a misery. <laughs> my cool stuff to play with list, which was already way out of control, <laughs> is now so bloated. <laughs> I haven't even got a hope in ever getting through it all. Mm. It's SignalR, .NET Core, DevOps pipeline, so many things you've done on a show that I'd love to play with, and would be so relevant to what I do. Wow. One thing I've noticed is that all these buzzwords and new tech that's out there, none of it is actually particularly new. Mm. It's mostly just been made easier to do and given a trendy name. Mm. I was doing linear regression and statistical optimization in Fortran and C++ 20 years ago. But nowadays, we pretty much call the same techniques machine learning. Yeah. The durable functions in the latest show sounded to me just like the Azureification implementation of the factory interface design pattern. Not a new technique per se, but a new implementation of the pro- solving the problem. Hmm. Okay. But something's got me thinking. You've talked about the relevance of the full stack developer and how this is changing with all the new cool kits that are coming out relentlessly. Things like Azure try to make our lives easier by making mundane things super trivial to do, like deployment. But nowadays, I don't seem to spend any less time doing things. The time is just spent differently. The time I've saved in not having to write tons of frameworky code from the ground up is now spent just figuring out how to do the same thing with the new techniques. Mm. This could be a serious impediment to the success of cloud services. As tech consultants, we're supposed to be able to actually do some of this, but perhaps more importantly, give good advice on which is the best way to do something. Hmm. There's only so far that it depends can carry you. <laughs> Since nowadays, it's pretty much impossible for anyone to keep track of all the different ways of doing things. The chances are when a client wants to do X for Y budget, until we get an indisputable and clear-cut benefits, people will invariably fall back on the approach that's just been getting things done. Take, for example, all the plumbing that's required to get cognitive services running in Azure and the associated learning curve, when we could more or less get the same results done with a console app running inside of an Azure web job. Anyway, keep up the good work, and cheers from somewhere across the pond. <laughs> We're across the pond right now, Matt. Yeah, that's true. Uh, appreciate that. You know, we are at a time in the cloud, and I think a lot of the conversations we're having here, where we are exploring optimal methods Right. For working in the cloud. And so it's reasonable that it is confused. Yeah. Because Microsoft's exploring this, Amazon is exploring this, Google is exploring this. And they're putting out all these offerings to see what sticks to us. Like mm. what do we actually run with? Mm. Uh, I think it's part of our job making podcasts to sort yeah. of sort through a lot of this stuff and give it a uh, where does this fit into my plans kind of exactly. way. But it, I admit it, it's not a, it's not as mature. It's a lot for remember we were first talking about this stuff in two thousand nine. Right. And it was you remember there was, it was a part where it's like I am not going to talk about Azure anymore until, unless it's a case study. Yeah. It's telling me about how awesome the cloud's going to be. That's right. That's done. And then we got a case study, didn't we? We Pluralsight. did. Pluralsight. Yeah. Was, uh, was it a Pluralsight study or was Vishwas brought as a study? But that- well, I think Pluralsight was the one of the first um, groups that actually deployed a, an, uh, an Azure, made an Azure deployment. They basically did Pluralsight in yeah. Azure. If but I remember it, correctly, I could be totally wrong. Entirely possible. Yeah. It, it is It is interesting. To be along with this. So, Matt, I totally get what you're putting down here, and I hope you stick with us for a while yet and mm. uh, keep your eye on which one of these techniques is really going to surface for the stuff you need to do. And thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at dotnetrocks.com or on Facebook. We publish every show there. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet, but not by Scout. <laughs> little six wheel robot comes up and goes message for you sir message for you <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> yeah see it's a large it's it's the great 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 grandfather it's like a garbage can yeah. with wheels basically and a motor and gps 
And he's funny. In a box. Because R2-D2 did have that little shock thing that he popped out, too. Yeah, when People yeah. were trying to hassle him. Uh, yeah, you know, a little <laughs> taser device, in one in every direction <laughs> might be fine. Yeah, intruder identified. <laughs> there you Stay go. Stay away. I got bananas in here. No, I think making it make sad sounds when you bat it around just so you generate sympathy, probably better. If people are going to anthropomorphize it and take their aggression out on it, it might as well be abusive. Be abusive, right? <laughs> they, they feel bad about it. Oh, you hurt the robot. Get away from you, snotty-nosed heap of paratropping. Nice. All right. All right. Now let's get, get to, to the real show. Sorry you had to witness all that, Simona. <laughs> but uh, Simona Cotin is a web developer with a passion for teaching. She spends most of her time tinkering with JavaScript in the cloud and sharing her experience with other developers at community events like meetups and conferences like NDC or just online. As a cloud developer advocate, Simona engages with the web community to help create a great developer experience with Azure. She loves shipping code to production and has built network data analytics platforms using Angular, TypeScript, React, and Node. In general, awesome. Yep, big pile awesome. Yeah, welcome to .NET Rocks. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's such, it's amazing to be here with you and just watch you put together this show. Oh, you get to see the sausage being made, as Richard likes to say. (laughs) 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 That's pretty good. We didn't really have to do any edits in that first part. Yeah, not that the listener will ever know because no. we do the edits to make it all sound right. But yeah, yeah, there's always some. Editing. So we're talking Azure Functions on Node, and my I guess my first question is, you don't need Node to do Azure Functions, do you? No, you can do Azure Functions with uh, C Sharp as well, or Java, or even Python. Java and Python are now in preview mode. Wow. Uh, whereas C Sharp and Node are in GA. Aren't we just just talking about we're doing Azure Functions in JavaScript? Why? What would be the separation between JavaScript and Node? I mean, it's it's the environment. So we're, you are writing JavaScript, but it's right. running uh, it's running in Node. It is running in Node. So you have the Node libraries or framework is that the the essence of it so you have a node web server that's being deployed somewhere in the cloud and that's where your javascript code is running right right but it still isn't like making a vm with node and and all that it is on demand like azure functions are right yeah yeah for sure Mm. Um, it's so what with Azure Functions, what happens is uh, we basically write our code and we push it somewhere to the cloud. And if there's enough requests being made um, in a continuous manner, then probably our code is going to run, it's going to be deployed somewhere in the cloud in a VM or in a container mm. uh, for a very long time, mm. forever. Uh, whereas if we don't have any requests coming in or we don't have any events happening to trigger that code execution, mm. that basically means that our code is going to be stored in a storage account and it's not going to be run anywhere. And the key is it all just happens automatically and you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. That's the key. That's pretty much everything. And apart from that, you don't have to worry about when it's running, why it's running, and where it's running. Mm. Uh, but also, you only pay for exactly the amount of compute and the amount of time that your code is running. So right. that's micro-billing. Um, and you also don't have to care about um, scalability. Right. Because, um, as I mentioned earlier, if there's no request or there's no event happening, then... Um, no instance is going to be deployed for you. Um, and if there's a million events happening at the same time, the cloud provider will make sure that you have enough instances deployed for you. Yeah. So you're not even adjusting the scaling knob anymore. Not you, at all. It's, do we have an, like an SLA around here about the minimum response time or maximum response time to a request? So this is an interesting question. I'm, a, I'm all about <laughs> interesting questions. <laughs> um, because this is a... This is a service that, uh, and that's that's the way I see it. Mm-hmm. So I haven't checked in with um, anyone from the Azure Functions team or anyone else. Uh, but because one of the key things with serverless is that you pay a very, very small amount of money. So think that, for example, uh, the first million requests are for free. They cost zero. Okay. Um, and then, that's, that's a good price. Right? Uh, and you only pay for what you use. Sometimes there's companies that end up serving like thousands of hundreds of customers and mm. they only, their, their monthly bill is probably $400 or mm. even less. Uh, there's a lot of use cases out there uh, where you can measure that. Uh, but basically because of that, um, 
There's one thing that's called cold start. Yeah. Which means that um, it might take a couple of seconds sometimes right. to have your code run. But much faster than lighting a VM. Yeah, for sure. And much faster than y maybe um, you serving in a traditional environment, mm. um, being on a Black Friday kind of situation. Yeah. And then manually having, like getting an alert to, um, that tells you that your website doesn't support it, like it's down. And right. then you have to go deploy a new resource or go to the store and buy hardware. And it's a good deal for Microsoft too, isn't it? Because they don't have to um, give the, as many resources that are lying fallow. They basically get to maximize their resources and optimize the, the use of them. Yeah, yeah. So um, in like many times, a lot of the um, utilizations for like all of the, um, or most of the sites there are in the cloud is probably maybe 10% mm. or 20% of what you're paying right. for. Um, and we definitely reuse some of the, uh, some of the resources that we have available. Yeah. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to take this on so you don't have to, cause you're a Microsoft employee and mm -hmm. this is your job. I, you know, there is a service level agreement for Azure Functions. It is online. I'll include a show link to the show notes. Great. And it's structured in a really interesting way because it doesn't guarantee an uptime or anything like that. What it actually says is you will get discounts on the fees we charge you if we perform under a certain level of wow. performance. And they're not talking about latency. They're just talking about failed requests. Hmm. So they are expecting above 99.95% uptime on wow. any request uh, that's pretty good for all requests if they fall below that you get a 10 percent service credit <laughs> if they fall below 99 percent, you get a 25 percent service credit wow so that i mean that's pretty high level of expectation right but it is yeah. interesting that really all they're really guaranteeing here is look if we fall down for whatever reason and there's many reasons it, remember we are communicating over the internet mm. right th that we'll just make it cheaper for you well, right. we'll, we'll, we'll pay, kick back some of the money that we, we charge you for that. So that's really interesting. And I, I'm going to include the, the links. This is the 1.1 edition from July of 2018. You can read the whole thing if you like legalese or need a nap. <laughs> but it sort of breaks down into this triggered executions against unavailable or unsuccessful executions. And that's where the, the only thing they really measure. So is there any uh, reason why a C-sharp developer would want to choose JavaScript node uh, for their Azure functions other than the fact that they just prefer to write it in JavaScript? I mean, is there any benefit to specifically using node? Yeah, so I'm, I'm totally biased here because I'm a mm. JavaScript developer. I'm a right. web developer. So I would definitely choose JavaScript in 99.95% yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but and if she doesn't, she'll give you a 10% off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I would choose JavaScript because you don't have that compilation step. Uh, no jitting. before Yeah, before uh, running your code. So imagine when we're deploying your code to a new, to a virtual machine, uh, we have to actually take that time to install dependencies and compile your code. And only after that, it will become available to uh, run the request itself. But that runs once, right? Uh, yeah. After you make a change. I think it's from a yeah. cold start. I'll yeah. Bet. Yeah. Yeah. From each cold start. And ASP.NET developers are used to that anyway. Yeah. You know the cold start. This whole thing is once this, if the site's busy enough, yeah. you've always got a compiled instance running. Yeah. But if, it, if suddenly you go dormant for three hours and it drops the instance, you now have a cold start, which is going to be a reject. Yeah. Yeah, that's your that's your first request that comes into that new instance right, that's right. being de deployed for you. Okay. When it comes to JavaScript, you don't have that compilation step mm. anymore. Mm. So in, in what I hear you implying is that startup times are shorter with a node implemented function over a a C sharp implemented function. That's that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Are you actually saying that, or are you just implying it? I, I <laughs> <laughs> well, it stands to reason. If you don't have to JIT, then it's yeah. Well, it's, 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 when I think about the advantage of both JavaScript and Node, the footprints are smaller, mm. right? I mean, the framework is the framework. The C sharp runtime is C sharp runtime. Like they are bigger. Mm -hmm. so I don't know if we're if we're literally measuring milliseconds here. Mm. Like you're not actually going to care. I don't know what the measurement actually is, but it. I get what you're saying. I buy it. Right. Yeah, and I, I think there's there's another item there. Um, so in many cases, or sometimes, 
um, you end up writing code in the browser, in the Azure portal, maybe. Right. Sometimes when you get started, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and with JavaScript, it's easier because of the same thing where you are writing your code in the browser and it doesn't, it's interpreted. So it doesn't take as long to see the results. Whereas right. with C Sharp, if you write it in the browser, which is not the ideal experience mm. for sure, but it's there. Right. You can do that. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I think we'd, we'd have to get into a corner where we, because a lot of folks I've talked to, we've talked to about serverless mm. have said, we're going into existing projects where we're having a performance problem or a scaling problem and peeling that piece out, implemented it in a legacy approach and an old service model approach. And we're implementing it in, as serverless for it, that ability to optimize that it's faster running, that it scales independently and, and trying to get a benefit from that. And only if I found a service where now we're like, we're, that's still not fast enough. It's like, okay, should we try implementing it in JavaScript and see if it makes any difference, mm -hmm. like switching language? And then it's got more to do with how well do you craft the language? Like if you're good at lean, smart, C sharp, Mm. fumbling your way through writing it in JavaScript, probably not going to be better. Well, and the next thing I think of is dependencies, right? Yes. We have C-sharp code that has dependencies on .NET libraries. Yes. And moving to JavaScript is going to require a little bit more than just a different language. Well, it's, that's where the node part comes in. We definitely probably have an equivalent of all most of the dependencies that you would find in .NET. Mm -hmm. You would have an equivalent in, in Node.js if that was the question. Well, you might. You might not. Uh, you know, yeah. they are two completely different environments. But I would expect to have, like, I, I, I don't have much experience with C Sharp and mm. .NET, uh, but I, I would expect, like, for the same problem, mm. I would expect to have similar solution in different languages. Sure, right? but it is something that I'd have to learn. Yeah, yeah for sure. Which means time. Right. Yeah. yeah, I got to think the most important thing is what language you're most skilled in. Yeah, yeah, I think like, so too. I thought that's going to make more difference than anything else. Like, I'm thinking you... of poly, right? I yeah. mean, that's a .NET only thing. Sure. There is a JavaScript equivalent of something that does transient error handling and retries and all of that stuff, but but uh, who knows what that is and, and if it works the same way. Yeah. Yeah. And poly definitely works for .NET, and I'll include it in the show notes. But that, you know, brings up another... Uh, issue of serverless in general, which is state management, you know, and, you know, they'll just tell you, you don't, you don't have state, don't use it. If you need state, you're not doing serverless correctly. Is that a fair statement? I think it, it really depends on, on, on your use case for sure. Um, the way serverless is architected, definitely it's stateless, which means that if you need state, you don't necessarily, you don't have to use it or don't use it at all. You can push that state. You just have to push that state to different storage right. uh, sources. So, uh, for example, you could use um, queues or storage accounts or yeah. databases, uh, but your code has to be stateless. And right. the reason for that is the fact that we are uh, scaling horizontally. That's so, right. Um, in order for us to be able to scale fastly horizontally, mm. we definitely need that code to be stateless. Um, that being said, we do have um, Azure Durable Functions, mm -hmm. uh, which Richard men mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. that will enable you to share state between um, function calls, yeah. um, as well as Azure Logic Apps, which is a different way or a workflow designer, uh, but a, a different way of running functions as well. Yeah, I'm thinking of the 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 guys out there that have a bunch of web APIs, you know, and oh, now we want to turn these into Azure functions, save money, save time, scale up. Don't worry about having these VMs, and um, it, you know, and all of the issues that might crop up, and that's one of them. I mean, I do know of, I have worked on web APIs that use the session. You know, they have state, and how do you get around that? Well, now you have to re-architect it. You have to think about how to get it. How do you, how to, how to, first of all, if you need it, uh, and can you re-architect your solution without it? And secondly, if we absolutely need to preserve things between calls, now we have different ways to do it. For sure. But I mean, again, it depends. Like the yeah, glorified sure. depends. Yeah. Uh, if, if all you're doing in your API, uh, which is, Many times the case, if all you're doing is reading data from your database, right. 
that's that's where you could surely use well the database is the state store right yeah you pass it a token as part of the call it uses that token to go get the data it needs it does the execution of the data it needs to do and it puts it back or it sends it out to you it's still a stateless call actually it just manipulated some state on your behalf yeah yeah and you don't always you need to need a database either you can use the file system i've seen reports where the the name of the pdf file is like you know uh, some sort of GUID and uh, that identifies the customer and then an underscore and some sort of transaction number order number dot PDF right that would be easy to parameter parameterize in a function and just give you access to those things in storage. Yeah, and I think you've mentioned their uh, web APIs, uh, which probably return an answer to a web application. Right. Um, and that, that can be a good use case for serverless sometimes. But I think that serverless really shines when it comes to also background processes. Yeah. So uh, whenever you have a one-time kind of um, task, mm. uh, imagine you are um, a company that wants to send out, that starts a campaign and wants to send out emails to their hundreds of millions of customers. Mm. And that only happens every uh, couple of months or so, or once right. a year. Um, that's the type of task that is it's absolutely great fit for for serverless because Mm -hmm. it will scale automatically you don't have to you don't want to host that code you don't need that the the code that uh, sends out the email to email to be hosted somewhere the entire year you only want to execute it yeah for that burst demand yeah right a particular time yeah and it's perfect right sure is and simone let me interrupt you for just a moment for this very important message this episode of dotnet rocks is brought to you by datadog a monitoring and analytics platform combining infrastructure monitoring, application performance monitoring, and log management into a one-stop shop. Datadog helps leading companies migrate to the cloud, transform to a microservices architecture, and transition from .NET to .NET Core. Their distributed tracing and APM provide end-to-end visibility into requests wherever they go, across hosts, containers, and service boundaries. See for yourself. Start a 14-day free trial, and Datadog will send you a free T-shirt. Visit dd.netrocks.com to get started. Support is also provided by MongoDB. You know, as a software engineer, chances are you've crossed paths with MongoDB at some point, whether you're building an app for millions of users or just figuring out a side hustle. As the most popular non-relational database, MongoDB is intuitive and incredibly easy for development teams to use. Now, with MongoDB Atlas, you can take advantage of MongoDB's flexible document data model as a fully automated cloud service on Azure. MongoDB Atlas handles all the costly database operations and admin tasks that you'd rather not spend time on, like security, high availability, data recovery, monitoring, and elastic scaling. Plus, get access to the latest database features as soon as new versions are made generally available. Try MongoDB Atlas today. Visit mongodb.com rocks to learn more. And we're back. It's Richard Candle with Carl Franklin. We're here at NDC London in drippy, drippy London. <laughs> we're here with Simona Cotton, and we're talking a little uh, node on Azure Functions, which, you know, we all love serverless, actually. It's like this sort of ideal compute. Only do the thing I need to do, the unique value I contribute, the plumbing's taken care of. Although I'm curious, I don't know if you know much about the underlying plumbing here. I've, I've heard that it's actually just containers operating under the hood. That it, that it is how the functions are actually run uh, by Azure for you. Yeah, I think that's a big secret. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely, it's uh, it's containers, and then there's a controller that will listen for events, right? Uh, and it will route, and it, its responsibility is to route requests to those instances and spin up those instances for you. And I'm thinking in the context of this code that I'm writing in Azure Functions, there's no reason I couldn't run it in a container myself. Is there anything special about the code that I'm writing when it's writing serverless that it's calling to things that's related to the serverless infrastructure? Uh, so you do have to uh, use an API mm-hmm. that's um, that that. That can that allows you to interact with the Azure runtime, right? Um, and for sure, you can you can also use containers. Um, in fact, Azure Functions has support for containers, right. uh, so you can take your code, deploy it in a container, and then um, spun it in Azure Functions. 
I, I'm still thinking about things like the way that you apply security to this might be different from one instance to another. You know, what is the security model for Azure Functions? So we're we're taking care of security for you uh, in the sense that, um, for example, if we need to update, like we decide what 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 version of the server we're going to run for you. Right. Um, and we're going to patch that for you. Um, and one thing that's probably important for a lot of people is that you're not allowed to access any of the underlying processes. So you only have access to the tip of the iceberg right. there. So mm. if you ever had to run an agent, like um, anything that you you might want to run in terms of security um that uses the um the operating system mm-hmm. you won't have access to that yeah. but and it, nor do you want to because then it could be your fault it's broken yeah right? <laughs> we don't want to own any of this plumbing we want to go all go away but i was also thinking in terms of just your authentication uh, authorization and how protecting functions and how we declare that because I, I presume it's just a statement that says this is secured this way and it calling into the the serverless apis for that yeah so we that there's there's different levels there mm-hmm. um and but before we get into that i just wanted i wanted to talk about um uh, a talk that i've heard this uh somewhere at serverless days london mm-hmm. uh by uh dave smith uh, at that time, a VP of engineering at DigitalOcean. Oh, okay. uh, so he talked about uh, the journey of uh, patching actual servers for the Spectrum meltdown vulnerability. Oh, wow. Yeah. And his talk was absolutely fabulous. He looked at it from two perspectives, like how they had to deal um, with this and how customers how they've seen um, the effects of them dealing with this and the timeline of um, what if people would have used serverless. Mm. Um, And if you think of this, basically, uh, by the time the vulnerability was announced, most of the main cloud provider, they had already patched their servers to to prevent from that. It did leak a little bit early. Yeah, but they had. I think they kept it under wraps for almost six months. Like the, wow. for instance, the initial detection of, and it wasn't that it was an exploit. It was a detection of a vulnerability, and then it started to be shared amongst the key vendors so that they could they could patch this. I don't know how far should we dive in a little about what Spectre Meltdown was actually about. Sure. I mean, these were CPU vulnerabilities meant as performance enhancements. They were basically the ability for CPUs to predictively pull memory. Uh, anticipating that the the normal execution call required, and there were no security checks on how it would pull memory. Mm. So it's basically doing cache fetches to memory, and if yeah. it catches wrong, it's just going to throw it away. Right. But the exploit was that executing code could see what had been pulled into the cache, right. and because there were no security checks, you could have pulled memory that you wouldn't have been allowed to look at, yeah. given, given the code had executed further. Yeah. yeah, and that's scary, right? It's a very subtle problem. The chances of exploiting it effectively are low, but it's a pretty serious blunder. The problem, of course, is that patching that means largely taking away the performance ba- benefit of predictive caching. So you, the depending on the circumstance, they were talking in between 10 and 30% performance decrease Wow, to, to, to turn these things off. Wow. And I, it's, I, it's only because I've done a bunch of shows on it, yeah. right, as radio, that's like the stuff's in my head. Mm. But uh, I love the fact that, you know, you talk about the security climate that we live in today and the fact that the industry as a whole tackled this problem and was quietly fixing it before talking about it in public. Yeah, like yeah. All and that was good news. And imagine if, like, if you have your own servers, if you have your infrastructure, you have to patch that yourself. Yes. Mm. Whereas if you used serverless or if you used some of the platform as a service offerings, then the cloud provider would have done that already for you. So you weren't exposed at all. You didn't care about You didn't that. even see it, right? Yeah. Where even if you're running a VM, you have dependencies on aspects of CPUs. And you might, at the minimum, need to rebuild your VPN to yeah. tolerate the patches. And, it, and there were OS corrections for Spectre Meltdown, too. So if you're running the VM, you need the OS to be updated. Can we go back to um, Azure Functions and containers? <laughs> if Azure Functions are infinitely scalable and you don't have to worry about anything, why on earth would I bother with a container? I, 
personally, I do prefer using Azure functions as it is. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think um, if you're interested in running a particular version of, let's say, Node.js. Okay. Because with, with Azure functions, you're going to use the node version that the cloud provider wants you to got it you don't have control over that yeah or anything else for that matter exactly yeah um, I see. if you wanted to to run um serverless code with a different programming language then that's the case as well mm -hmm. right it seems like uh you know as soon as the the serverless thing got hip you know, all these container people were like, what are we doing? You know, <laughs> <laughs> why are we doing this? We should just use these lambdas and functions and be done with it. I think there's value in both of them. For sure. sure. Sure there is. Yeah. And it's that stack. If you want to control the, the stack with every, every last bit. Yeah. Yeah. Containers for you. And what version of Node is provided by Azure Functions? So at the moment, you're going to um, use the... So we support the LTS version of Node. Okay. Um, and current one, the current... And what does LTS stand for? Yeah, so uh, LTS stands for long-term support. Mm -hmm. And we also maintain the active. All right. So the late, you tend to be right on the current one. Yeah. As soon as the group that is maintaining Node bumps up a version, you mm -hmm. guys are right on it. Yeah. And I can't imagine there's many breaking changes when that happens. I guess, you know, because we were talking about how you might want to use a container so that you can stick with a particular version of Node. Mm. And so it's always a question of, you know, what, if, what dependency are you taking that you'd want to be protective yeah. about a version of Node? And that's it. It's the dependencies, yeah. right? Yeah. You might have a stack that all requires these specific versions. Yeah. yeah and you'll have to update your code for that. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and you think about, in the end, we're talking about JavaScript here, and especially running it on the server, you're running, you know, ECMAScript 7, you want to press right against the edges on that, that might, it, it, there could be some breaking changes. Could be. Yeah. It could happen. It could. No, <laughs> I don't think we're crazy. Well, not that crazy. <laughs> uh, so, earlier you asked about authentication yes. and authorization. Uh, so, if we go back to that, uh, Azure Functions actually runs on top of um, Azure App Service. Okay. And that means that we can, with a single click, we can actually enable the App Service authentication feature mm -hmm. um, and integrate that with Active Directory or some of the social media uh, logins. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's another layer, layer that we might be interested in. Um, whenever we're, we're publishing functions, basically, especially if they're HTTP, um, that URL is going to be available or can be available to the public. Right, so, so it's completely anonymous. Yeah, um, and then that's actually one of the, the options oh, that okay. we have there. So when, when we're configuring functions, we can configure authorization. And um, the first option is anonymous, which means that the Anybody URL... Anybody can call it. Exactly. It's got a URL. Whereas there's another one uh, called function level, um, and that basically gives you a token and Azure functions will, the runtime will check against that token when you're making a request, if it's not the correct one or if it doesn't exist, then it will return a 401, which is permission denied. Okay. Um, and that's typically the mode when this is an Azure function called by something else within your application? Yeah. Okay. Um, and then there's a third level, which is called admin, which I would think that um, it's basically... Um, you need to use your subscription to so, okay subscription account to yeah. to log in. So I'm thinking the admin mode is just for sysadmins, the, yeah. the handful of accounts that have admin level privileges. Yeah, I would say if you have the subscription ID, that's you. You have to be the admin owner. Yeah, in order to do anything, or you just sign the admin owner. Yeah, thinking about Carl Ott's talk it's about accounts, right? Right, it's like right. you share those things down to only certain people. But that's fair. That that token for the function mode. Is that something I'm supposed to be putting in the key vault and then calling to it that way? Or is that a token that's the, that's like a token from key vault that I can call around with? That's a token that you can attach to your, that you have to attach to the URL itself. Oh, okay. So it's literally in the query string. Yeah, exactly. All right. 
And so this is something I want to embed in my app then? Or how do yeah, I? Yeah, this is, this is something. So if you have a web application that's calling, um, or if, if you expose an API, say, for example, the way GitHub does it, right. right? You have GitHub, which allows you to query for repositories, users, and you need to make authenticated requests. Right. Um, and maybe you even want to, as an API designer or as a uh, product that has an API, you want to limit the number of uh, requests that a user can make. Right. So you give them this token and this way you know that this user or this product has made um, this request and you can limit the number of requests that they're making to your... Because there is a set of tools inside of Azure for API management that deals with identifying users and how many calls they have and you can put different rules around each one of them. Do you mix that in here? Uh, yeah, so you could add a layer on top of Azure Functions right. uh, that's uh, API management, right. uh, which now has a serverless option. Oh, good. Uh, and it it's like a thin layer, mm. uh, and it will enable you to do that. Nice. And so, yeah, then you're now you're working with that bigger infrastructure that even has the billing and all that good stuff. We did a show with right. Vishwas about that yep. a, while, yeah. a while back, and it's calling it Azure Functions. So I... Presume that you're running in function mode for the Azure function, but the token's actually owned by API management. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. If you're going to, and I think I'm just thinking about the right ways to do this. Like I, if I'm actually going to make this serverless function customer facing, I want all that infrastructure around it. I agree. And I want to minimize the exposure of my keys to my customers. Yeah. No matter what, you know, even if they are public. Well, I don't, the, I, I'm funny that way. But I like with the API management that yeah, you're giving, the, you have the account management part. You can do easy revocation and mm. all those sorts of things. Just so that's, or you know, the main, uh, the main thing for me is that's costing you money when they call that thing. Mm. So yeah. when they go wild, when every piece of software loses its mind, <laughs> you know, it's like I remember my SMS story from the early days yeah. where I accidentally sent thirty two thousand seven hundred sixty seven SMS messages in a second. Oh, I've done I've in done, 1998. I've done worse. I've sent out um, before I understood how it worked. I've sent out emails to Carl and Gary's subscribers that had auto reply or replies enabled. Right. So basically, somebody would reply back, unsubscribe, and that would go to everybody <laughs> and say, I would, I "Unsubscribe? What is this?" And then that would go to everybody. And then you know everybody's complaining, and the more they complain, yeah, the worse it got. Oh God, yeah. that is not a fun place. The email furball. Uh, it was in the. Uh, yeah. early 90s when I was a greenhorn. Uh, well. Funny you mentioned that this, I think this week or last week we had a case of... It just happened at Microsoft yeah. again. Yeah. <laughs> Where someone has uh, has changed the setting on one of the GitHub uh, configurations for all the Microsoft accounts. And we were... Was anybody at Microsoft that had a GitHub account was automatically subscribed to a list. Yeah. And okay. that they misconfigured the list so that when you replied, you replied to the list. And Just it was like 10,000 plus people. Yeah. It was funny because everyone was like, do not reply to this email. Yes, and then right. it was going out to everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Would everybody just shut up? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and, and you can see the experience by people are like, oh, and they just write a rule. Right then and there, just put in a rule. This is going to run for a couple of days, mm. and just all of that just go directly to the trash can. <laughs> <laughs> They'll figure it out. I don't need to contribute to that. <laughs> sure. Humans have a problem with the exponential function. <laughs> just <For sure>. don't <laughs> grapple with what happens when the multipliers happen that fast. And that's where I think I care about stuff like API management and things. It's just that you don't know when this is going to get out of control. Here's a set of tools that are built. To stop that from getting out yeah, of control. Yeah, and, and one uh, one thing that, so um, Miao uh, Jiang and I did a, a webinar um, maybe late November or early December. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to share the link to that as well. For sure. Uh, but he demoed the serverless version of API management. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And one of the cool things that you can also do with API management is caching. So instead of actually having to call into your function, we will cache uh, those resources and you will if you won't even run the function. That's, nice. That was my my next question. Do you cache the API management uh, and just refresh it when the keys change, yeah. or and or the functions themselves? Why not? Why wouldn't you do that? Exactly, and I think probably depends on how often your data changes. So mm. then you can actually define a 
a time a timer for how mm-hmm. long your cash will still be uh, available. We used to um, use triggers in SQL Server to update a cache in ASP.NET. Remember those days? Yeah, so, back in the day, Service Broker. Yeah, so you would cache a page in ASP.NET, but the thing that would cause it to reload was a change to the database. So you'd have to use a trigger, and then, yeah. And there I was a, there was a little voodoo. Same. Probably we could, right? Well, sure you could. I mean, yeah. it's all Sky's the same the guts. <laughs> yeah. You can get yourself as much trouble as you care to get into. <laughs> you have all of those options. Sure. No question. All of these different ways that we tried to find sort of logical ways to choose code to execute, especially around caching. So, um, you know, we have a tendency to go off on tangents here in .NET Rocks, and I just want to make sure we covered all the points that you wanted to cover in this uh, interview. Yeah. I mean, I had a couple of things here, like what are the common use cases? Uh, what are the challenges? Uh, some of the patterns. Uh, Brendan Burns ha- has written a very good book on designing scalable architectures where he talks about some of the patterns that are a good fit for serverless. And Brendan Burns okay. being the Kubernetes guy yeah. that works yeah. for Microsoft. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, and he he talked about how serverless... So you'd want to use serverless um, and apply uh, the decorator pattern. Right. Um, and um, that basically refers to use cases where... And this is where I'm going to bring in a new term that everyone's going to be super excited about <laughs> and everyone's super excited about already. It's called Jamstack. Jam. Jamstack. So that stands Stack. for JavaScript, APIs, and markup. Oh. Okay. And when you're writing code that's that's part of the Jamstack, um, you're basically mostly focusing on the front end. Mm. Uh, but you do need that API part. And that's where serverless comes in, um, where the idea is not to have a very thick backend. Yeah. Right. So you are either calling existing services, you're not reinventing the wheel. If you think, what does a, what does normally a website need? Well, yeah. it needs an authentication system, right? Right. Um, and you can reuse services like Active Directory mm-hmm. or Auth0 or many other uh, providers out there that have already done that for you. Um, what else do you need? Uh, you might need to send some emails and then you have uh, Office 365 or you have SendGrid to do that. Mm. And the only thing that you need in order to maybe make that request from the front end, you actually need a place where you can stick your API key into. Right. So that's when you would use serverless yeah, uh, because you want to kind of forward that request uh, but authorize it. Yeah. And you don't want to put that in your front-end code because that would be visible for everyone. Sure. Um, so that's one case. Or maybe you want to like, change your request or your response and you would mm. use serverless for that. Um, the other pattern that's um, that where you can see serverless being used, um, it's event-based pipeline. Um, and... I think of this in, in a real case scenario where uh, I'm a new employee at a company and I go through the onboarding process, right? Mm. So uh, the first thing whenever a new person joins a team, the first thing that you need to do is maybe send them a welcome email. Right. So mm-hmm. why not implement a serverless function that does that, mm-hmm. right? Why not? Uh, and then the other thing that you need to do is make sure that they have a badge. So why not implement add a trigger where whenever this person has um, joined, uh, send an email to admin to create a badge for, for them. Right. And you are, ba- you are defining this these series of events um, mm. that you can execute. Right. Yeah. And it, yeah. it seems to me like this is where you're getting that sort of logic apps model of we just have a set of functions along with some logic app pieces and you would just chain a workflow together. Yeah. There's one call and all these things sort of invoke. Exactly. That's if they're dependent on each other. If they're not, you can just send them all out asynchronously. They could be all asynchronous. Let like, them happen. Yeah. Uh, over on the IT show on Run As Radio, we do talk about this whole onboarding process. Like all of these yeah. steps now in a modern company that yeah. you know new employee and it's like they're going to need an email they're going to need these, these permissions they're gonna right. need those permissions right the welcome email and it's like it's a long list of stuff it is. right but they are kind of there's some relationships there like you better have created the email account before you try and send them an email yeah <laughs> but, but you're but some of it's also asynchronous sure and then of course the 
offboarding you, you process. Help. There's an offboarding process too. <laughs> it's the same. Yeah. Shut down all those accounts and well, it's permissions. Not, it's not quite the same. Like you want the that person's email box now to be shifted over to their manager mm. so that if there's people still trying to contact them, it just doesn't get black yeah, hole. Yeah, like yeah. it is subtle, but it is interesting that we're much more code driven on this now in IT. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I actually think that that's that's one of the most fascinating uh, things about serverless for me uh, because it kind of triggers that creative part of us mm-hmm. where you're like, oh, wait, I could actually automate this mm. absolutely manual thing that I don't like doing and I right. don't want to do it, <laughs> right? But, but if you approach it from, I'm now going to write a program, it's so intimidating, you probably don't do it. Whereas it's just like, a, I need this little thing. Tiny thing. It's the right. thing. It's yeah, the little thing. You're not committing to a monthly bill and to spinning up a server right. and configuring all of that. You're just committing to writing Tiny bit and your of first code. million calls a month are free. Yeah. <laughs> it's just an onboarding process and you've onboarded more than a million people. Who are you? <laughs> but oh, that's that's really interesting. And, it, and it, it's interesting. I like your thinking here around how serverless is like really approachable programming. Like yeah. outside of just this pro developer circle. Right. That this is a place where folks who just want to tinker with a little bit of code and with minimal consequence and minimal ceremony could probably get value from it. It's cool. So what's next for you, Simona? What's next for me? I'm actually traveling. So this will be in the past, right? I'll be at Ignite. I'll be at some of the Ignite the Tour. Mm -hmm. Um, Microsoft Ignite the Tour. Um, the first stop that I'll be at is Washington, D.C. Okay. Uh, and I'll talk about serverless and uh, Azure tooling. So actually, one of the things that I, I, I should have mentioned uh, about Azure Functions is that if you're getting started with Azure Functions, make sure that you're using VS Code with the Azure Functions mm. extensions. Okay. Because it's it just makes things so much easier. You can run it locally. You can debug it locally. So I'm going to talk about some of that uh, in my Azure tooling session. You mean you can debug Azure Functions? <laughs> yes, you really? can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. yeah. Good. Well, that's great. Thanks for spending this time with us. It's been wonderful. Thank you for having me. It's been great. All right. We'll see you next time. .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time.